With so many translations and versions of the Bible, how can you know which one is right for you? You're invited to join us for a practical and informative edition of Ask Pastor Mike, coming right up on Focal Point. King James, English Standard, New American Standard. When it comes to picking out a good Bible, it seems like there's nothing standard about it. Are some versions better than others? How can you know which one is right for you? Well, welcome to Focal Point. I'm your host, Dave Drewy, and today we're sitting down with Pastor Mike Fabares to chat about Bible translations. We're joining Focal Point's Executive Director, Jay Wharton, inside the Pastor's Study for this edition of Ask Pastor Mike. Jay? Pastor Mike, we've got a good question from a listener today. They ask, I want to buy a Bible to read and study, but there are so many different versions out there. How do I know which version to use? So before you answer that, Pastor Mike, okay. maybe you could talk about why there are so many different Bible translations. Okay. Well, yeah, that's a different question, but there are a lot of Bible translations for two reasons. Well, probably a lot more than that, but two basic reasons for why there are good translations out there. Number one, because the receptor language, the language that you're putting the Bible into, you're translating into, continues to change. And because of that, you're going to have another translation to try to keep up with the lingua franca, the, the way that people speak in the marketplace and, and how people understand words. So that's one reason there's different translations. Another reason there are translations, because we certainly have gone through in the last 100 years, 200 years or so, a lot of uh, great discoveries in terms of uh, manuscript evidence from, you know, especially in the New Testament, regarding the, the Bible. So if you're looking at scholars putting these discoveries on the table and saying, okay, here we have more manuscripts that go back further, or maybe they don't go back further, but maybe from a different vein and a different family of manuscripts that are copied from this particular region or this place. And you start saying, well, this really helps us make some decisions between this variant reading and that variant reading, which I teach about a lot in the Origin of the Bible series, then we want another translation perhaps to come out to help clean up some of those debated texts. Now, they're very small as most people know, and I often teach when I talk about this topic, these variant readings are usually inconsequential. But still, we want to know exactly what did Luke really put down there when he wrote this book to Theophilus, or you know, what did Peter write when he wrote his first epistle? What were the, the actual words on the page? We want to know every word. So as scholarship advances and more discoveries are made, sometimes it's helpful to come out with a new translation. And as the receptor language changes, that's the second reason you would want to maybe come out with a new translation. I mean, I don't think you're going to be, you know, reading the NIV if Christ didn't return, you know, a thousand years from now. Probably no one's going to be speaking this kind of English then. So we need translations, and sometimes that creates a glut of translations, you know, on our uh, Christian bookstore bookshelves, but that's just part of it. Well, to get back to this particular question from this listener, how do I know which version to use? We see a range of Bibles out there that some are really difficult to kind of read through, and some are much easier to read through. Maybe you can talk about the differences between those two. Well, for our listener, I'd just be real specific for her and, and say, listen, um, if you go to a good Bible teaching church, 
and you've got a pastor that's teaching the word verse by verse, line by line, then I'm going to say, get the translation that he's preaching from. And I trust he's preaching from one primary translation. And that would be good to utilize that translation as you sit under his teaching and the study that he brings to you. That would be good. And sometimes you find in some churches, maybe the you know the women's Bible study will be using uh, one translation and the main service uses another. And I think you, you, know, you need to have a couple translations on hand. And I would think it wouldn't be bad for any serious Christian to have a few English translations on hand at home when they study the Bible. Now remember, translations are just trying to give us a picture of the original. There are manuscript issues, and sometimes you know a Bible that's 500 years old isn't going to be as up to date in terms of the discoveries as a more recent good scholarly Bible translation. But they're all translations of Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, and because you know we're looking at a translation, we have to maybe get more than one translation laid out on our kitchen table when we're studying a text very carefully to know exactly how the best way to understand this ancient Greek idiom about gird up the loins of your mind, for instance, what in the world does that mean? And if you have two or three translations sitting on your table, or you've got you know the Blue Letter Bible online, or you've got Bible software with all these different translations, sometimes you can get a sense of it because one translator only gets one shot at it, right? He gets to choose one time how to translate that phrase. And because there are idioms and cultural issues in the language, sometimes we need more than one translation to get a good picture of it. Either that, or you go to school and spend you know four or five years learning Hebrew and Greek, and then you don't have to be so dependent on English translations. What's the difference between a word-for-word word and a thought-for-thought thought translation? Well, word-for-word word is a word-for-word word translation. <laughs> and is it that basic? Is that, it's pretty simple, yeah. Jay, good question. Um, yeah, word for word, it's trying to take a Greek word or a Hebrew word or an Aramaic word and just turning it as carefully and, and cleanly as it can into English and still be readable. Because if you just sent them right across, it would be hardly readable. I mean, matter of fact, it would probably not be readable after a phrase or a sentence or two. So they're trying to make it as readable as possible, but be as direct as possible. A thought for thought just tries to look at what's in that Greek sentence or that Hebrew sentence, and then just say, well, what's the thought of it? Let's just put that into nice, smooth English text. That's why some of the smoothest reading English texts are really not the most accurate because they are thought-for-thought translations, which you start really to get into an idea of, of paraphrasing the thoughts of a text. Now, a paraphrase technically is an English Bible that was taken from an English Bible. That usually is a paraphrase. Some guys do those paraphrases and do have a working knowledge of Hebrew and Greek, so sometimes it's a little bit more uh, profound than that in that they are referring to the Greek language or the Hebrew language, but it's clearly a thought-for-thought kind of reading, and that's why some people like paraphrases because it's so easy to read. Well, it's not very accurate in terms of exactly what was written by Paul or by John or whatever book of the Bible you're looking at, Isaiah or Jeremiah. So I would always say, because God inspired the words of Scripture initially in the original manuscripts, I certainly want to never have outside the arsenal of a serious Christian a a good literal translation, as as much of a word-for-word as you can get. Pastor Mike, we use the English Standard Version here at Compass Bible Church. Why have you chosen that version, and what do you use when you're studying Yeah, I mean, I do use a variety of translations, and of course, I went to school, like all of our pastors here, to to learn the original languages, so we're spending lots of time in the original languages we prepare our sermons and our lessons, but the ESV was chosen as a preaching translation for us here 
because it is a good, reliable, recent text. And when I say recent, I mean, generally speaking, it's easy for English readers to understand because it wasn't written hundreds of years ago or even 75 years ago. It was written just a few years ago. It came out. And so the English is trying to be understandable to the modern reader. And yet it's one of those translations that really doesn't dumb things down. You know, the reading level is a little higher than some others. And the word for word nature of it does make some sentences a little harder to understand, but it's trying to really capture the essence of what's going on in a Greek or Hebrew sentence. Well, thank you, Pastor Mike. Hopefully this conversation has equipped listeners to get a Bible uh, that works for them and start reading it. And we're going to keep this conversation going with a message on this topic called The Communication of God's Message to the World. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture, here's how the NIV reads, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Verse 17 says, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, the key word that we need to grapple with is the word that is translated into English, God-breathed. We see that in the NIV, which was translated in 1973, codified for us in the New International Version. Now, that, though is an old translation because this actually originally was in the 1526 first translation from Greek and Hebrew into English in Tyndale's translation in 1526. So this has been around a long time. The King James translators and most translations today will read, the scriptures are given by the inspiration of God. And the translation from Greek into Latin was divinitus inspirata. And that word inspirata from Latin was simply transliterated from Latin into English in 1526. The problem is the word in Latin inspirata and the word inspiration mean two different things, although it is translated in almost an identical transliterated way. If you take an old Latin dictionary, I have two in my library, old Latin dictionaries, pull them out, put the Latin lexicon down on your desk, and look up the word inspirata. Here's what you'll find. The verb inspiro will be defined in your dictionary as to breathe out, to blow in, or to blow on. That's what inspirata or inspiro means. So when Jerome translated the Bible from Greek in the New Testament in this passage, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, into Latin, he picked that word because whatever he saw there in that Greek language, he said, well, this is a good Latin equivalent in spiro, and it is to breathe out, to blow in, or to blow on. That's a problem. It's a problem because if you open up your English dictionary and you look up the word inspiration, here's what you'll find. The definition of inspiration in your English text is a stimulation of the mind or emotions. I was sitting around, I was watching TV, I was flipping through the channels, I saw a commercial on, you know, you know the sham wow, and I, had a, I was inspired to get up and, and wash my car. Inspiration. Definition number two will read something like this. A sudden or creative act or idea. I had an inspiration. It was something that was a sudden creative idea or behavior or act. It is something that I do and it's like, wow, 
The picture is, inspiration is a guy who's just reaches and thinks and has an idea, a great idea to do something great. And when we read the word inspiration in a text like this and we attach it to the realm of the Bible, we start saying, I get it, I get it. Moses sat around and was inspired to write the Bible. Peter sat there one day, grabbed a, a pin, and, and he picked a piece of parchment up, and he started writing because he was inspired. Okay? It's not what the word means in any way in the biblical text. That is not what it means. All right. To help us with this, and even that illustration that I just gave you, it is good for us to ask the question, what is inspired? Okay? That's the question. How did it get from the mind of the prophet into the pages of Scripture? How did that work? Well, we need to ask the question, what is God-breathed? Okay? Does the adjective describe the writer? Is that what the adjective in the text describes? No. Matter of fact, and I wish we had the advantage of all knowing the Greek language, and you'd see that the adjective that is translated inspiration in most translations or is translated God-breathed in the NIV does not describe the writer, which is the common way that people immediately jump to thinking, hey, Bible, how did it come to be? Inspiration, I get it. The writers were inspired by God to write the Bible. That's not what's being said here. It's not a biblical doctrine. The authors were not inspired to write the Bible. It's not what it's teaching. Because we've taken a fourth and fifth century Latin word, and we have brought it all the way across into English while that word in English today means nothing close to what it meant back then. Okay? Clearly, in this text, the adjective is describing the scriptures, the ta graphe, the writings. Now, all scripture, right? They're God-breathed. The scriptures are inspired, not the reader, not the author. Okay? It is the scriptures that are inspired. Now, Let's just talk a little bit about this difference. As I said, the translations, most of them say inspired by God or given by the inspiration of God. There's only four that I could find in my rather expansive library that use the words God breathed. The NIV, and I'm so grateful for that, and I guess you could add the TNAV, but I'm counting TNAV and NIV as one. The ESV, and I'm very grateful for that, a new translation, very important, good one, breathed out by God. The ISV, a lot of people haven't heard of that one, the International Standard Version, and Wiest's translation, which is sometimes actually produced as a translation. It's a rather expanded translation. And I guess you could add the Amplified Bible, which does add the phrase, but it's like in a bracket behind it. So let's just say five to be gracious. Okay, so let's grapple with the word a little bit. Theopanustos is the word. It's a compound word, Theopanustos. That is the word translated God-breathed. Okay? Obviously, theos, theology, theophany, you know the word theos is the word for God in the Greek language, super common word. Okay? Nuo is the root of panoustos, if you want to pronounce it that way, is used in passages like Matthew 7.25. Now you're going to start to get in the sandals of Jerome, and you're going to figure out why he used the Latin word inspiro for this word, because when you read this word, nuo, in the text, you find it translated this way, the rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. That's the word. If we're going to talk about inspiration, which I'd prefer we talk about the doctrine of God-breathed, that would be better, we need to talk about God 
breathing out, blowing out a writing. That's the picture. Why is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16 important? Because 2 Timothy 3.16 describes, at least we would argue if I was a skeptic, only the Old Testament. The scriptures were generally used in the New Testament to describe the Old Testament law, prophets, and writings. Altogether were called the scriptures. Jesus used to say, you don't know the power of the scriptures. And he was referring to the 39 books of the Old Testament. Okay, that was what was in view. Now, if you say, well, that's interesting. Why is this so important then? Because 2 Peter 3.15 equates the Old Testament ta graphe with the New Testament ta graphe, the writings and the writings. 2 Peter 3.15 and 16. That our Lord's patience means salvation. In other words, as long as he waits and doesn't wrap up the world history, we got time to see more people saved. That's a good thing. So bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation because this passage started with, where is Christ? Where is Christ? You guys said Christ was coming back. Where is Christ? And the answer is, well, he's waiting because he'd like you, you thick-headed critic, to become a Christian. That's the turnabout in this passage. He said, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you, now he's a New Testament author, right? With the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other tagraphe scriptures to their own destruction. In other words, you disregard the Old Testament. We've already learned. Jesus told us what happens to you if you don't pay attention to the Old Testament. Don't heed that. New Testament takes the word, tagraphe, and now applies it to New Testament writings, at least in this text, and we'll expand it further to Paul's writings, which is about half of the New Testament. So 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 is important. As defined by Scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all we've learned so far is that whatever inspiration is, it is God's breathing out of a book. Like you would breathe out a spoken word, he breathes out a written word. Okay? Now, let's deal with this. How does it work? Get into the inner workings, open the hood on the concept of inspiration, and we go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. It wasn't man that had the thought, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's a helpful picture. Whatever inspiration is, now that we add the prophet in the middle of this, he becomes a part of a chain of events that begins with God's thoughts that now he is privy to and the Holy Spirit is going to carry him along until that prophecy is written. That word then becomes critical. What word? The word carried along. Pharaoh is a pretty common Greek word. You Greek students know that. But when you add it as a participle and you put it in the passive voice, it becomes much more rare. Now it's not, I carry the, the wood to the fire, or I carry the man along, right? But something about being carried along. Now the, the object of the sentence becomes someone who is carried by something else. And that picture here is what's in view. The people that spoke from God, and obviously the step that's not stated here because it begins with written scripture, 
no prophecy of Scripture, the writings. Their speaking was written, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, Pharaoh, passive form. Now, here's the picture in Acts 27, 15. Let's start in 15. Two references here. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it. This is a great setup for this word. And we were driven along. There it is. We were carried along. We couldn't resist it. It overpowered us. We were just a pawn here like a ship being driven by the wind. Then we passed through all these places. And then he reiterates this at the bottom of verse 17. He says, fearing that we would run aground. You see that there? He says, they lowered the sea anchor and they let the ship be, here it is again, passive form of Pharaoh, we let the ship be driven along. The picture here is of a prophet in the middle of some kind of of chain of events where he doesn't have the initial idea, God does, he now is given that idea and he is carried along so that the bottom line, the tography, the prophecy of writing the scripture is the end result. So whatever is written, it didn't come from the prophet's mind, ultimately, and it didn't come from the prophet's interpretation of God's mind. Revelation, we already established, was God disclosing to people what would otherwise be unknown. The apostles and prophets have now this process of God putting that thought in their minds and driving them to the end goal of a written document. That is the picture of Inspiro. What we're saying is that what you read in Paul's writings to the Ephesians, what you see in Isaiah's writings to the pre-exilic Israel, not really his thoughts. He gets the thoughts as a part of a process, but the Holy Spirit was moving him along to put that into a written form. God has a thought in the mind of the prophet now, Revelation. God now takes that prophet And the Holy Spirit is so involved in the superintending of that prophet that what is the end result of his writing is something that the Holy Spirit has driven him to. That's the claim of the Bible. And the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture came about that way. God was the originator of the truth and the Holy Spirit guided him until that was placed into a written format. You're listening to Focal Point with Pastor Mike Favarez and a message titled, The Communication of God's Message to the World. To hear the original uncut version, visit the sermon archives at focalpointradio.org. And when you go online this month, we have a special gift for our new listeners, as well as those who have been listening for a while, but who have never contacted us before. Look for July's free gift called, Following Jesus. I'm a Christian, now what? This easy-to-understand guide is perfect for new believers or to use as a tool for outreach and ministry. Following Jesus will teach you the basics of faith and Christian living. And it's our free gift to you today just for getting in touch. Find it at focalpointradio.org or call 888-320-5885. And then, when you donate this month to support the Bible teaching on this program, we'd like to send you a copy of an excellent book by Ray Comfort called, Why Would Anyone Follow Jesus? If you struggle to articulate why you follow Jesus, 
Or if you're a skeptic looking for some way to make sense of this whole Jesus thing, then this book just might change your life. With his signature insight and contagious enthusiasm, Ray Comfort walks you through 12 persuasive reasons to believe that Jesus of Nazareth was who he said he was and did the things the Bible records him doing. Most importantly, he explains why it actually matters to your life right now. And it's our way of saying thanks for your donation. Join the mission and give today by calling 888-320-5885. That's 888-320-5885. Or you can donate and request the book online at focalpointradio.org. And on behalf of everyone who benefits from this program, thank you. We truly could not do this without you. Well, I'm your host, Dave Drewy. So glad to have you with us. And be sure to come back again next time as we continue exploring God's Word together right here on Focal Point. program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.